The views expressed in our podcast do not represent the views of all sorority organizations. You might even hear different viewpoints among MJ sorority team members featured. Real Talk intends to foster open dialogue about issues we see across the country that affect real women. And beyond these thoughts and recommendations, we would ultimately refer you back to local, state, and federal authorities, as well as your own sorority's rules and policies. While we intend to keep content light and informative, there may be insurance claims discussed that involve bodily injury and personal damage of a sensitive nature. Be aware that topics may be a bit graphic and even emotionally charged. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Real Talk with MJ Sorority, the voice of sorority risk management, where we talk about the big risks, small questions, and real challenges sorority women face today. MJ Sorority is the premier insurance agency for women's sororities. We are passionate about educating and empowering our clients. We believe that striving to be unique never stops, and that by promoting safe decisions and smart risks, we can continue to create spaces for women to grow, serve, and lead. I'm Sarah. And I'm Allison. Be sure to stick around for the end of the episode where we get into what we can't stop talking about, besides sorority risk management, of course. For now, let's dive into our conversation and let's get real. Hello, good to be back with you on Real Talk with MJ Sorority. Today, we are going to talk about what we call unofficial housing and what we mean by that are, they're often called annexes uh, or even apartments, anything that is kind of known as a sorority chapter house without being an official sorority chapter house. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's there a bunch of them. Yeah, I was going to say, am I missing anything else in there in the definition? No, and we have a position paper on this on our website, but just wanted to break it down because this can be a very nuanced issue. Uh, we get a lot of questions on it. Um and sometimes don't get questions on it, which concerns us because we know there are plenty of them out there uh, with some risk management concerns. So we're going to kind of get into what are they, how long they've been going on, and uh, talk about some specific insignificant claim examples from this area that have affected sororities. Yes, perfect. So uh, this has been going on as long as we have been writing insurance for for sororities. (laughs) So it's been a decades old concern for our clients, for NPC groups more generally. And we have seen some significant claims from this area. So the problem being is that it appears as if it's or it's known as a sorority chapter house, but it likely isn't following the rules and guidelines that an official sorority chapter house would be required to follow. Right. And and part of this is human nature, right? If there's an or if there's a structure that has rules and guidelines and expectations along with it, people are always going to try to figure out a way to operate and exist outside of those boundaries. And that's um, we know that some of that's reality and part of it. Uh, but it does present some unique concerns. Um, and our kind of top three concerns from this issue of unofficial houses are that they are not owned by the women's fraternity or sorority. And so they're typically less safe uh, because there's not somebody from our organization keeping up maintenance, making sure uh, just that things are safe from a structural standpoint as well as operationally. And there's just less control, less duty and control when there's not ownership of the structure. Maybe there's a lease with a landlord or another organization 
And there can start to be expectations that, oh, they're going to take care of this, or we don't have to worry about this because we don't own it. Uh, And along with that, the second concern is that residents do not believe that the rules of the organization extend to the housing arrangement. So if you feel like it's not really your house, you might feel like you don't really have to follow some of the rules and expectations of your sorority in that space. And third, uh, it's not too big of a leap for the campus community, though, in spite of some of these disregarding identity and rules and things, it doesn't mean that your campus community disregards those and they can easily construe this unofficial residence as a legitimate chapter house. And we're going to talk about some of the ways we've seen this play out and claims and injuries and real concerns that have happened, as well as just ways that you can start to make that line more and more blurred between what's officially part of the sorority and what's not by some of activities and even what you put up on the walls and just the way you approach this facility. And um, I think it's easy for anybody to kind of start to think, well, this sounds nice in theory, but it won't happen to us. This is just our little apartment where seniors live, or this is just um, this space where we're kind of safe to do X, Y, Z. But that's why we like to go through claim examples is uh, these are real things that have actually happened. And we've kind of made the details vague to protect the people involved. But some real issues and real hurt and injury has been caused by just some of these structures and institutions existing uh, in terms of unofficial houses. So, Sarah, if you can read us some of these claim examples, we'll talk through why each of them is a problem. Sounds good. So our first one is a young man was at a house where chapter members live and was known on campus as that sorority's chapter house, even though it officially wasn't. So he fell on the way out of the house and struck his head, and he has been in a coma for several months. The organization was dismissed from the lawsuit, but lawsuits against the individual chapter members and the landlord in that that so the the individual chapter members that lived at this house and then the land the landlord excuse me that owned it are ongoing. So this was a serious one that I think our our team even followed the claim for a while because we were so concerned about the young man in a coma and just everything that was happening to him. Um, but in this case, the chapter, the sorority chapter, was brought into the lawsuit because of its reputation on campus um, and because of this house's reputation on campus. So had this not been known as an unofficial chapter house, it, would, it wouldn't have even needed to be dismissed from the lawsuit in the first place. And hopefully the incident wouldn't have even happened. Perhaps it could have. But you know, as you'll see as we go through these claim examples, a lot of times it happens when you have guests over and uh, there's just not a lot of duty and control and people can get out of hand if there's a fight or just an accident. Uh, some things can happen. Uh, when there's not as much duty and control. Um, Yeah. And I think the important thing to remember on this first one is that um, obviously we are your sorority's insurance agent, but we also want to bring awareness to the fact that when you are hosting these types of things that you could potentially individually be exposing yourself to risk too. So in this case, those chapter members that were renting that house are on in an ongoing lawsuit defending themselves because mm-hmm. they didn't the lawsuit alleges that they didn't properly care for their property causing this man's or contributing to this man's injury. 
So it's something to keep in mind. They were contractually obligated, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's a good point. Sometimes we think we're immune because we're just a tenant and we're just somebody signing a lease, but that actually can create more obligation if you're hosting an event and you don't have the organization's protection behind you, right? Right, exactly. So the next claim example we wanted to use was another young man at a party at another unofficial chapter house, of course. Uh, Several other men, so several guests at the party, assaulted him, resulting in serious injuries. The organization and the individual members, again, who rented this apartment, I think it was in this this case, were named in the resulting lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So once again, I think what happened here was that even though this was guests assaulting guests at this kind of event at an unofficial facility, the chapter members involved were deemed quote unquote negligent for not providing security and maybe even not calling the police or medical professionals soon enough. So they took on a duty, a greater duty as hosts of an event um, that due to the injuries that occurred, that the lawsuit is saying they failed to fulfill that duty and were negligent. So when you're hosting an event and it appears to be strongly associated with a bigger organization, you are representing others, not just yourself. You have to remember that it does bring in more lawsuits and more personal responsibility. So um, this is important, not just morally, but legally uh, in terms of, obviously, we don't want people to get hurt, but uh, we're kind of trying to talk through the logistics of your responsibility and thus um, your liability as as something goes wrong and where you could could not get pulled into stuff. And wasn't this one, Allison, where the, in its part of the discovery, they had announced this party at like chapter meeting or maybe like chapter Facebook page. I can't remember, but there was some contributing so. kind of documentation that the plaintiff was using to bring the sorority into things. I think so. I think they had announced it at a chapter meeting specifically. And in part of the discovery, you're right. They were able to go back in like meeting minutes and see that this event was mentioned in official chapter business. So when you do something like that, again, it's no longer something that you can just say, oh, it was happening over here and we didn't know about it. Um, you, They very consciously knew about it and were even, you could say, approving it by talking about it in the meeting minutes. Yeah. So our last claims example, hopefully these are helpful just to give you some real life examples. Mm-hmm. The last one is a member attended a party at an unofficial chapter house. She was in an accident on the way home from the party resulting in a serious injury. The organization's insurance company, they've already actually settled this uh, claim for over $800,000. The chapter members that had rented the apartment, so again, they were named in the lawsuit, were also sued, and their parents' insurance company settled for over $200,000. Wow. So even though the members were deemed partially responsible, the organization was deemed more responsible, at least in terms of dollars and how this lawsuit paid out. After a lawsuit, they parcel out percentages to cover costs for bodily injury, for pain and suffering, et cetera. And so one of the legal principles as these claims are settled is they're trying to look at, we have multiple groups who are liable or responsible. And to what extent was each group truly liable and to what extent can each group pay out? So that that is an influencing factor on how do we get these injuries and pain and suffering of, of whoever is harmed uh, when a claim happens. They're going to look at who's responsible and who's got the, it's kind of back to the deep pockets theory, who's got the money to help cover this, this accident that shouldn't have happened in the first place. So 
Um, and that's the hard thing with unofficial chapter houses is we can go back in almost all of them and say this shouldn't have happened in the first place because there shouldn't have been an event to this scale happening on behalf of the chapter in this space. And so we're always going to go back to that conclusion and there's always going to be some level of liability, if not for the chapter, at least for the members involved. Um, and thus, as you can see in this example, their parents' homeowners policies were pulled in, which I'm sure the families were not pleased about. So, um, right. So not, not happy <laughs> things to talk about, but um, it's important to talk about sometimes the realities of what can happen, um, especially yeah. in an unofficial chapter facility. And we've had, I would just briefly mention too, some more serious claims recently where lending these uh, facilities out to other organizations that are then allowed to do whatever they want and host whatever kind of event they want has resulted in injuries and death of attendees of that party. Um, and just a lot of negligence all around, a lot of finger pointing and, um, you know, it, in addition to lives lost and uh, lives alter permanently, um, there's also a lot of hurt within the organizations then too when something like this goes wrong because it's a lot of he said, she said, not wanting to talk, not wanting to own what really happened and what was allowed to happen somewhere. And so um, that's another thing is if, if you do have one of these facilities, definitely don't lend it out to another organization that you don't know what it's going to do, what they're going to do with it, that you don't know what kind of event they're going to host. You don't know if they're going to be responsible. You don't know if they're going to haze in your facility. Um, all sorts of stuff. So it's why we're on extra high alert about unofficial facilities, just because even if it may seem innocent, sometimes uh, things can get out of hand and an event can escalate quickly, especially without just the guidelines and oversight of your organization. So after, since we've been through some examples, hopefully that bring it home for people a little bit better. Let's talk about what you should do. So if you I mean, just kind of the the do's when it comes to unofficial mm -hmm. housing. First, it's important that you don't put your sorority letters anywhere on the property. So even like an apart, like Allison was mentioning, like a senior's apartment or something like that. Do not put your letters anywhere on the property um, or inside the property or anything like that. This kind of falls into several several of these follow what we call it, uh, affectionately in our department the duck theory which is if it looks like a duck walks like a duck acts like a duck it's a duck so if it looks like a chapter house acts like a chapter house feels like a chapter house um it's going like that's how a an attorney a plaintiff's attorney is going to see it as well and so just kind of keeping that in the back of your mind of you know when you might be at something that might qualify or trying to determine if it might qualify as an unofficial house in this way. So uh, not putting your letters there is, a, is kind of an obvious win. Mm -hmm. Another one is don't announce an, an example Sarah mentioned of part of why one of these, these claims escalated the way it did in terms of chapter liability uh, is don't announce parties or other functions at the unofficial chapter house at chapter meetings or on chapter social media pages or websites or group chats, etc. So um, again, the more that you're making an event known through official chapter channels or even unofficial chapter channels, whether that's a group me, a group message, 
Um, the more that you're making this known through the communication channels that the chapter has set up, the more you're making this seem like an official event and, and like an official space where that's supposed to be happening, even if it's not supposed to be happening. Yeah. Um, and of course, do not make mention of the organization on the lease agreement for the property in question. So that lease should be between the landlord and the individuals leasing the property only. There should be no mention of the sorority in that situation in the lease agreement of any sort. That's a pretty direct line instead of a dotted line from this from the sorority to any kind of you know risk here. And so we want to make sure that those individuals are responsible and that that landlord, the agreement is between them and the landlord with no mention of the sorority or the chapter. So these are all three ways, things you should do. Um, as Sarah mentioned, after saying a bunch of don'ts, it's, it's, it might sound like more don'ts, but it's things you can do to try to, again, keep that blurred line less blurry and more separate in terms of, is this an official chapter space or not? Uh, but I know then at the end of you know, this list, we sometimes get questions from clients of, okay, we understand that. But at the end of the day, we still have these sort of unofficial spaces operating and they're out there. And we know that there's not a lot we can do to curb behaviors or make it stop um, in terms of just getting all the letters out of the space completely or removing all liability for what's going on there. And so, if you cannot ultimately separate the identity of your organization from that space, then we would say it's time to start following the typical sorority house rules. Um, and so if it's if it's going to operate like it's a sorority space, then it needs to start operating with the same kind of rules you'd see at a typical chapter facility of one of our sorority clients. Um, and some of those expectations continue to be that there's no alcohol in the facility, that there's no open flames. Um, there's some sort of guidelines and hours around visitation and that um, non-members can't just come and go as they please at any hour of the night. Um, and that some there's some sort of facility management oversight. So whether it's a house director, ideally, um, or, or resident advisor or somebody that's uh, trying to make sure that there's not trip hazards and um, crazy parties going on. And so again, if unfortunately, if you can't if you can't delineate enough that this is not a chapter space, then it's it's important. Next best advice would be to start treating it like a sorority space. And that's regardless of whether it's officially or legally affiliated with the sorority. Um, and that would be, you know, it's similar guidance for unofficial events, right? If, if it's going to be deemed an event because it's starting to look more and more like a sorority chapter event, then it probably needs to start following the guidelines of a sorority chapter event. Um, and not be kind of left in a dark corner to fester and do all the um, not great things that it can then do without sort of the light and oversight of more management and oversight. So, um, yeah, that's our thoughts on that. Yeah, well said. <laughs> so in a nutshell, just to wrap things up, the more things you can do to make a any kind of living environment uh, look like or be associated with your organization. So be that hanging letters, announcing, you know, functions, chapter functions at this location, signing legal documents, which associate the sorority with this location, anything along those lines, the more you could be pulling your organization into a lawsuit and the more you then need to treat it like a real sorority house. 
as, mm-hmm. as Allison mentioned in that kind of last point that she articulated. And so if you have questions on this, as always, reach out to us. It's As Allison started off our conversation, it's a really nuanced conversation. We're happy to talk it out with you. And um, it's also important for individual chapter members to understand when they are participating in these, you know, individual, when they're renting a location, um, that they could be opening themselves up to liability individually too, not even considering the organization. And so it's just just because you do all these things that we've talked about today, a lot of which have are concerned with protecting the organization, uh, you also want to think about ways to protect yourself individually or maybe your parents' homeowners' policies, which are often brought into some of these lawsuits too. So as always, if you have questions, reach out to us at Real Talk at MJ Sorority. But right now we are going to turn to how we always conclude the podcast with what we can't stop talking about lately. Um. <laughs> Um, so what I can't stop talking about, I actually just moved to Virginia. Um, so we're really recording this remotely today, mm-hmm. but I am living kind of in the Western part of Virginia, not to be confused with West Virginia, but, um, I'm near a lot of mountains and I'm not out outdoorsy stuff is not typically my forte or my natural habitat, as I like to say, but mm-hmm. uh, I do enjoy it once I get out there um, and it have good positive influences on just getting me out into nature. And so I'm trying and starting to get into hiking and have gotten my first pair of hiking boots this year. Um, and actually just recently, I'm very excited to try out this weekend, my first pair of retractable hiking sticks to stabilize my little weak knees and ankles um, for some of these <laughs> hikes. So I'm, I'm excited to have them. And I know you've mentioned, Sarah, those have come in handy and been super important for your fa- some of your family yes. hikes when stuff has happened. So excited to have them. Yes, we are big hikers and big fans of the hiking sticks. My mm-hmm. husband is 6'7", which I think I've mentioned before on the podcast. And we actually were did a trip in uh, July and he fell pretty, rolled his ankle pretty badly. And I, I saw it happen and I was like, oh man, we, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's like, it was starting to thunder. I was like, I'm going to have to hike this. I think we still had three or four miles to go. Um, and we, I, I was just, you know, playing out all that I was going to have to do, but he used his trusty hiking sticks and just took one step at a time. It was not broken. He just has very messed up ankles from years of basketball. So. I told Allison they, they're a must. And I will say I really like them for – I think they're definitely necessary for the downhill. Mm-hmm. Even downhill more so. harder on my knees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, even more so than easier, the But yeah, that's when I'm more likely to slip or just be unstable. And if, if you've been summoning something, you're tired by that point too. Right. right? Like your body is just less like ready yeah, to spring stable. back into place. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Good point. So, yes. so I'm, we expect a full report about your new Yes. Hiking. Well, I'm sure this is one of many pieces. I'm sure I'll start getting all the yeah. backpacks and camelbacks. I'll we'll have to send things. you our top hiking gear. Would love and that. And you'll just be, you'll be ahead of us in no time because you live in a much more. Oh, yeah. I can go on a hike can after hike work. Hiking in Indiana is just not very, you know. Not quite the same? No. no. I went on mm-hmm. a hike uh, on either Monday or Tuesday. I mean, just close to our house. And we went with, we took our dog and Grant got back and 
looked at his watch and it said elevation change of 26 feet. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, this is Indiana hiking. Pretty flat. The well, that's where hiking. I come from. I yeah. grew up in Oklahoma, Texas, and then I've been in Indiana. So I've gone from yeah. flat, flat, flat to now <laughs> lots of mountains and hills. So it's definitely a change. It'll be a fun adventure. Good change. Waited for you. Yep. Um, so what, right. what I can't stop Sarah? talking what about. Yeah. Well, I don't. I was. Have, I was honestly struggling with what I've. I've been joking that um, I found this podcast. Well, I think it's a YouTube channel too. It's called Huberman Lab Podcast. So, Doctor Huberman is a neurologist and an ophthalmologist, which I find is interesting. But he has his own laboratory at Stanford and does all this studies of human behavior and things like that. And he interviews people or just has, it's just him talking. It's like an hour and a half lecture. I feel like I'm in a, some kind of graduate program. I've decided that I'm using this as an escape mechanism for like everything else going on in the world, which I feel like is better than some of my other choices of escapism. So I've, I've just been binging listening to these and I have been learning so much. The one or two things that I have put into place which is, I mean, I should have like 20 things that I've put into place, the amount of hours that I've put into this thing at this point. But um, one big thing that he talks about a lot, he's super into the importance of sleep and how if you don't have your sleep dialed in, then there's no point really like even worrying about much of anything else, (laughs) like in terms of, you know, working out or what you eat or supplements or anything like that. Sleep is the most important thing to dial in, which I think it's true for me too, but um, it's been helpful to hear that stressed. But another thing he talks about a lot because of its importance to sleep is the importance of light. And so one thing I've been doing that he recommends is getting like five to 10 minutes of sunlight exposure within 30 minutes of waking up. And so it's been easy for me to do because it's been really nice out. I don't know how Mm. this will work in like January when it's cold in Indiana, but um, (laughs) been trying to get just go outside, you know, do a little stretch facing the sun first thing in the morning. And then what that does is it kind of like starts your circadian rhythm Mm -hmm. so that you're tired, you know, at, at the right time, basically for your body and things like that. So those are just a few things that I've put in place. I'm sure there's more, but I can't think of them. And it might be boring for you to listen to me regurgitate them at this <laughs> no, point. I love but... that little tip. I would never think about that, but it makes sense that just like things in the natural world need light as its cues for when to do things and when to bloom and when to be harvested and all those things. It would make sense yeah. that we would be on better sleep patterns if we just expose ourselves to light at the right times of day and not be pulled away in the caves of the indoors all day. Um, especially yeah, exactly. first thing in the morning. Good thoughts. We'll have to all check right. that out. Well, it was great to be with you all as always. If you have questions or suggestions for us, again, email us at realtalk at MJ sorority and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for real talk. We want to hear from you. If you have feedback, comments, or questions, send us an email at realtalk at mjsorority.com. Visit our website, mjsorority.com, to learn more about who we are, what we do, and explore our huge resource library. Check out the show notes from today's episode to dig a little deeper into the topics we discussed. This has been Real Talk with MJ Sorority. Be smart. Be safe. And we'll catch you next time.